Bezrin Hashem, this is Parsha Naso, 57.79. We just had a beautiful Shavuot, and I was revisiting my, let's just call it my favorite Gemara, on the topic of Shavuot. It's in Masechet Shabbat, Daf 88a. It's discussing what does it mean that the Jewish people said Naseh Nishma we will do and we will hear that they proceeded doing to hearing or understanding it's also ends up being indirectly a discussion of the olamatohu the discussion of the universal experience of what is called ether in english or hylic material in greek and hebrew this is what I'm learning about myself, my favorite topic, and the deeper wisdom of Judaism, the idea of ether, and how reality manifests out of ethereal material, out of the ethereal zone of tohu. In my journeys in learning, I found Thrushkacha Prati through Divine Providence, uh, at this point has been my favorite sefer, my favorite book called Jerushay Olamatohu. It's a long, epic work spanning probably a thousand pages discussing the frameworks of Jewish metaphysics, Kabbalistic metaphysics from the perspective of the second verse in the Torah. And this book is by the Leshem Shavuot Achlama, Shuta Yagen Aleinu, the father of Rab Aliashiv, the prior Gadol Hador, Shuta Yagen Aleinu, a Lithuanian Kabbalist, writing during World War One, experiencing tremendous destruction and explosion of global society, which must have influenced his desire to write or continue this work on what people call chaos, disorder, and the reason why Hashem created this such this fundamental aspect in the world. Um, I don't know. I'm not keen on, or I'm not. <clears throat> it's not my interest. It's not my... Um, I'm not so inspired to go and dig and understand all the historical details. Frankly, I appreciate when others do that for me. I, so I don't know. Even when he wrote the book, I know that he took about like a decade between certain portions of writing the book. He says so in the book. Um, in the fourth Jerush, the fourth major exposition, there are five Jerushim in the book and then some sort of an appendix at the end covering specific topics. <clears throat> but let's look at this Gemara a little bit. So this is about the top third of the page in Shabbos 88a. That the Jewish people were standing at Mount Sinai. And it literally means, or it midrashically says that they were standing underneath the mountain that what does it mean that they were standing underneath the mountain? It's as if the, the Hashem was <clears throat> pulled the entire Mount Sinai and uplifted it from the ground, uprooted it from the ground, and was held, hovering it over their heads. It says like a wedding canopy. And it says, if you're going to take the Torah, that's good. And if not, here's going to be your burial. So, if this is a dire, negative, scary element that God says, I'm going to bury you. If you don't take the Torah, then why are they describing the mountain as a wedding canopy? So, a friend of mine, I think it was Moshe Barnhart, he pointed out... Um, that we know there's another midrash that compares the 
evil inclination, the Yetzahara, it says that in the future, the wicked people are going to cry. And they're going to say, how do we not conquer this evil inclination? We see it's just a hair. It's just like a hair thin. And the Tzaddikim are going to cry. The righteous ones at the end of time, they're going to see the, the evil inclination. And they're going to cry because they're going to see it as a huge mountain. And they're going to be crying with tears of joy, thanking Hashem. How did we overcome this enormous evil inclination? So is it a hair? Or is it a mountain? And so, you know, basically what Moshe was saying, my, my Chavrusa and, and uh, thoughts I've had also is that it's both. And, you know, the, it, it's described in other places, the evil inclination. <clears throat> it starts out as this hair-thin possibility, but it grows. If a person unfortunately follows it, it grows and grows and it becomes a mountain. And so, perhaps... And perhaps the mountain being hovered over their heads as a wedding canopy would be almost like the inverse, positive aspect of the evil inclination. Saying, here's the mountain that you can create through spiritual elevation. One mitzvah will lead to another and all of a sudden you'll be ascending. And you'll be lifting off the ground the way this mountain is. But if not, if you follow the evil inclination then you'll be, you'll descend into the negative space, to the inverse opposite negative space going down in the aspect of digging a hole through a negative inverse, like, <clears throat> so if this positive mountain hovering over their heads like a wedding canopy represents their elevation through mitzvah after mitzvah they can do, but the idea of not following the Torah and being buried would just be, to go the opposite direction and go to like a underground burial, underground burial in the shape of, of a mountain, but in the negative inverse. So I think maybe that's just an understanding. But, okay. Amar Rabbi Yaakov Yaakov Mihan Umuda Rabba says, Rabbi Yaakov Yaakov, that this made a big excuse against keeping the Torah. In other words, like that they were coerced to take the Torah. That that's why it didn't really last for them because they didn't fully take it on with their full desire and their full good intention, which is very strange because we're about to see that they got this tremendous reward for saying Nase Vanishma, for saying we will do and we will hear, implying that they were ready to take on the Torah even though they didn't fully understand it. Even though they didn't fully, and that doesn't mean that they said we're going to do the Torah and we don't even know what the instructions are. It means we're gonna, we know what the instructions are, but, and we're going to do it even before we fully understand what it all means and, and what it's going to lead us to, that they had that um, tamimut. They had that pure, innocent trust to follow Hashem, the, the idea of tam, which the idea of t tam means like tough mem, means to be pure, innocent, simple, following Hashem. That's what, how Yaakov Avinu was described, Jacob our father, as Ishtam Yoshev Olim, he was a simple, faithful person who was simple. He wasn't complicated. He just followed Hashem versus his brother Esav was Ish Sadeh, Ish Saibafiv, that he was a hunter, he was cunning, he was skillful, he strategized. You know, and this basic quality of being simple and just trusting Hashem and not naive, but just um, to not be so complicated is is really as is explained I think the Shem Shmuel and many others explain this is this is the original downfall by Adam in the garden that he, he should have Hashem said don't eat the tree of knowledge and he came up with all sorts of complicated reasons why he should and, and many many sources including the Leshem are saying why he thought it was a big mitzvah to get involved in that oh you know, Hashem said this, but like he didn't really mean it like that, and and it wasn't it wasn't simple, like it should have been. He wasn't as simple as he should have been. And the Jews, on the other hand, the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they achieved that simplicity. They said, "Nase Minishma, we'll do it, and then we'll hear it later." Exactly what it's all about. Um, so again, I'm just a little confused. Like um, now, we're saying that. The Jews had an excuse, the Israelites had an excuse for not keeping the Torah later 
implying that they didn't really fully take it on with full with their full heart because they were kind of coerced into it again that seems like kind of a contradiction um when uh it says a little later that they got all these crowns that these angels brought everyone two crowns and this was like a huge level um for, for, for their pure intent to take on the Torah. But I think what one explanation that Lubavitcher Rebbe gave was that it doesn't mean that they had a big excuse not to perform the Torah and like they had their big excuse why they did the golden calf because they were coerced into taking the Torah. No, they took on the Torah with their free will and with their, with their, um, with their good heart, with their altruistic hearts. But the idea of the excuse is that they had such tremendous clarity when they took on the Torah that Hashem wasn't really threatening them to kill them by holding the mountain over their heads. Rather, what it represented was this huge moment of clarity, like a wedding. Like, they saw Hashem was their husband. Hashem was their life. That Torah is life. They achieved that state of simplicity that Adam had in the garden where the Rambam brings that they weren't at this point the Jews standing at the foot of Mount Sinai where they are mystically referred to as Ishechad Velebechad like one man with one heart which is a, a clear reference to Adam in the garden where they came back to being one being just like Adam they um, didn't even at this point struggle between good and evil anymore they just saw truth and falsehood they just saw life and death and they saw that Torah was truth and life and they saw that walking away was death so the reason that this was an excuse for them later so to speak is that when they got the Torah the first time with the Ten Commandments and all that it was from a perspective of such clarity that it wasn't completely like from their having to work it out themselves. And that's explained by the Leshem and many others is like ultimately why they couldn't hang on to it. Um, it actually is beautifully how the Leshem explains in that book, Jerushay Olamatohu, in the, one of the appendices, the Jerushay Eitzadasa the essay on the, the Tree of Knowledge, that why was it that Adam, who had such a huge level, such a huge level of clarity in the garden, he had what it was, what's called the level of Chaya. How could he lose it when the Arizal says, <laughs> and the Siddiquim teach us that when you have that level, you're not going to sin again. Yet Adam had that level and he sinned and he lost it. So he says the difference is that when you get that level through having to struggle and to clarify it with your, for yourself, through going through challenges and doing clarifications and learning about light from, the dark, from dark situations, then when you earn that level, you're not going to lose it. But when it's just given to you, you're liable to lose it because you, you've you been given something that you didn't fully earn, in a sense. And so you don't have the armor. You don't have the experience. You don't have the, the hard learning experiences to not lose it when a trial comes. And that could be it's the same thing here, that they had this, they had this level of light, like symbolized by the wedding canopy, the surrounding light, this huge light, which would be like the light of Chaya that they didn't fully earn, even though they went through tremendous difficulties in Egypt and some major tests between leaving Egypt and getting to the foot of Mount Sinai. But all the other darkness, all these other potential challenges that was waiting out there in the ethereal future possibilities, which is something we're going to explore all those future possibilities of sinning and messing up and having to learn through mistakes, all those scenarios which were mystically out there in the ethereal future of as-of-yet-manifested realities, um, those challenges hadn't been worked out, and it's like the, the, Mish, the Midrash says, so like, why did they do the golden calf right after they got the Torah? And it says that the Satan... <clears throat> wanted to bring Irbuvia back into the world. He wanted to bring confusion and, and mess and, uh, yeah, uh, a mixed up mindset. He wanted to bring insanity back into the world after they had so much clarity. So it says that he, 
the people thought Moses was going to get down six hours earlier, so when he wasn't coming down from getting the Torah for the first time, they started to get nervous, and then the Satan made it look like Moses' coffin was flying through the sky. So they got all freaked out, and then the Arab Rab, the mixed multitude, jumped on the opportunity when everyone was afraid to make it seem like Moses had died and said that they needed a new leading force to lead them to the desert, so they made the golden calf, which just on a simple, simple level is such a huge point. Like all the major sins, I think, in the Torah that happen and in our lives in general is coming from being afraid, losing trust. All of a sudden, things don't seem the way they are. We get weak from fear, and then we do negative things. Um, and just another word on the this idea that the reason that Adam lost his level at, uh, in the garden and that the Jews lost their level at the Mount Sinai because of challenges that they hadn't worked out yet. So this is a foreshadowing to what I really want to use this to introduce to a series on the on the world of Tohu, on a series on this idea of reality coming out of Hylic, ethereal uh, possibility fields, and that these possibilities that we encounter in ethereal possibility fields is really the root of our challenges with our evil inclination in, in, this, in these things. Um, I haven't really given that yet a proper introduction, but I want to record this on on this favorite Gemara of mine from Masechet Shabbat because we just had fresh insights from it over Shavuot and um, I actually started working on this idea last year, last Shavuot <clears throat> and I kind of want to actually do a, like kind of a seum on that and, and point out the interesting patterns I noticed in this Gemara to, in order to then gear up to this next thing I want to work on until next Shavuot, which is kind of taking this these ideas coming the other direction, which is looking at the negativity, looking at the evil inclination, looking at where our challenges are coming at us from, from the ethereal possibility fields. And I'm going to explain to the best of my ability what I mean when I say that in just a second. But first, so why, why would I be talking about this? If anybody knows me as a friend, they know that I love to talk and think about the deep things like really abstract weird <laughs> um, uh, issues in, in Torah philosophy and Kabbalah like I just love that I don't know why I, I, I just I'm not satisfied by only looking at Bashat I, I have to explore the really abstract things that frankly can be hard to communicate to people and to myself but I, I just am driven to not give up on understanding it you know, it's brought in many different sources. Um, for example, in Pirkei Avot, yeah, I think in chapter 2, it could be in chapter 1, it says that if somebody forgets their something in their learning, it's as if they're, they're liable to death. And the Alter Rebbe, in his commentary, he says, what does that mean? And, and this is also brought by the Kamarna, the Kamarna Rebbe. Um, for both of them um, he says what does it mean if somebody forgets even a little bit in their learning so he says they both say um, each person has their learning and it's defined by their reincarnations so he said, they say basically like this you have one person and they're so obsessed with what's called pshat, like they have to know all the halacha, they have to know all the details, they have to know all the gemaras, and and they can't sleep unless they know every single thing in pshat. And you have another person, and they might enjoy it, and, oh, and this person, he's like, Kabbalah, I respect it, or sometimes, unfortunately, they don't respect it, but let's just say, they say, I respect it, that's cool, but it's not for me. I'll hear a little bit here and there to inspire me, but that's not my bread and butter. That's not my main thing. But you have another person, and this is like me, and they, they want to know the Peshat. You know, my, I myself, I try to learn some type of regular Seder and Rambam, uh, 
which I appreciate that Chabad custom a lot. I try to learn in in Dafyomi, the Gemara, I try to learn some Halacha, but it's not my, it doesn't get me going like learning the deeper Panimiyot Torah, the deeper Kabbalistic meanings going on. And it's brought that in that Pirkei Avot, that this has to do with Gilgal, like it could be that a person, he doesn't have as much of a drive to know. They're just not as pulled towards learning, let's say, the intricacies of halacha, uh, because they already did that in a prior reincarnation. And that the reason that they really, really want to know the deeper Kabbalistic things is because that's what they still need to take care of in their soul's journey across lifetimes. I'm not saying that, yeah, that means that I mastered halacha in a prior reincarnation, and I still do try to spend a lot of time learning halacha. Um, but, you know, all I'm saying is people are attracted to different areas of Torah as a focus over other areas of Torah because of the nature of their soul. And so what that Mishnah says is if you forget anything in your learning, it's as if you're liable to death, means your learning is those things which you're really attracted to, those things which you love learning, that you want to spend time learning, those things that you find yourself remembering, those gemaras, those stories, those laws that stick with you because you're so passionate about those learnings. Those are, that's really your main portion in Torah for your lifetime and this lifetime. And those are the things you have to constantly review because they're really your, your main focus. And there's a lot more to say about it. It says a person should learn where their heart desires to learn because that's really where the energy is going to be there, the intensity. I mean, the Torah is infinite. I mean, they're, they're literally, it's, it's, a, it's a Torah Chaim. It's an ongoing, the Torah is still being discovered. Like, and this is brought by the Leshem in other places. It's, it's literally an Eitz Chaim. It's literally a growing tree. Hashem designed it that what it says is constantly developing as each person finds their own soul's explanation on it, like that the soul, the Arizal says in Shar Gilgulim, I believe, that a neshama literally is a function, a soul is a function, and its function is to perish on the Torah. The function of each soul is to explicate the Torah through his lens, through his, his exper- life experience and his learning, like that's what a soul is. Like the, the soul, the loftiest thing, this 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 peace of God, it's a function of explaining the Torah in his all of his life experiences, where the Torah represents the true underpinnings of reality. So the reason that for me I love learning these deeper ideas in Kabbalah, and I like to and that I like to share them really is that for me, in my experience, I'm not just trying to theorize about theories and, and, oh, that's interesting, and, oh, you know, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and anybody that I know, all, and the people that I do know, everyone that I know that also feels a tremendous love for these wisdoms, they're not doing it because, you know, they want some type of degree or, or accolade or, or recognition or to feel intellectually stimulated. It's in order to live a better life. All of the whole reason that all myself and the people that I know, that they, they're attracted to this wisdom, they want to learn it, they want to deeply understand it, they feel an urgency to get it right, to know it as best they can, to somehow know this unknowable wisdom, is in order to better live life and to understand and appreciate the darkness in this world and why Hashem made it and how it works and how we can, with wisdom, handle it and use it and wield it to, to, to master our, our mission. And, you know, it's kind of like a cliche or just great wisdom but 
the best way for a person to overcome their enemy is to know their enemy. And our enemy is our evil inclination. And so, God willing, what I want to explore in this series on the, on the world of Tohu is like to understand our evil inclination. What is it? How does it work? Why did Hashem make it? How do I see it? How do I see this invisible enemy and understand it? So if I know it very well, all of a sudden, it's no longer this enemy that when you don't know something, then, then you're afraid. And then when you're afraid of something, it can have power over you. When you know what it is, then all of a sudden, it's no longer frightening. And then all of a sudden, you can partner with it. Such that, and this is again foreshadowing, but the Chesel Avraham says that the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, is simply created to service to the soul, to minister to the soul. So, and there's a Midrash Parat, that Adam in the garden, this is Oive, that he sinned because he could have been using that snake as an amazing servant who would have been sent out to bring him gold and silver and jewels from all over the four corners of the world. This is the image we'll be working with. Also, if it, and just as a foreshadowing, this is very much similar to how we were just also looking at the Gemara and Gitan, where Shlomo, King Shlomo, he needed this special worm called the Shamir to cut the stones to build the, the base of Megdash, to build the temple. But it says that you can't build the temple by hewing out the stones, by cutting the stones with iron implements. You can't use implements of death, a sword, knives, to, to create the instruments to build the temple. So there's a quandary, how are we going to build the temple? So the rabbis told King Shlomo, well, there's this shamir, um, there's this shamir stone that Moshe used also to cut the stones for the ephod, for the for the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, of, of the high priest, that also, you know, those stones had to be uh, cut without the iron implements. So how did they do it? They had this special worm called the shamir, which had laser beams shooting out of its eyes or mouth or whatever it was, but it was whatever, that, it's what they use as a laser to cut stone without using iron. <clears throat> so eventually Shlomo was advised to capture the demon king, Kashmadai, uh, to figure out how to get this shamir stone to basically build the temple, and that's what happened. He captured the demon king and he used, basically, he used the demon, the demons at his disposal to build the temple. This is amazing. So the Chesel Avram and many others say the idea of demons and Jewish demonology or whatever, it's, it's not like... My real interest is this idea of the Olam Atohu, of, the, of these worlds of chaos, these primordial worlds, or these, wor these possibility fields which exist in high like, potential space and ethereal space that we're encountering every moment that we step into the future. We're encountering possible moments coming out of an ethereal space, coming up to meet us and, and greet us. And then what we do in those moments when we fix them into their place through our choice, this is really also the realm of demons and this is the realm of the evil inclination. And again, this is foreshadowing what I want to talk about. But the fact that we see that King Shlomo, who was, in a sense, the, the, the Israeli man who, more than ever before, was <clears throat> living out the ideal pinnacle of what Hashem has in mind for Israel, which is that the, the Israeli nation is the world's superpower, the temple is built, there's peace, wisdom is flowing, Everything is ascending. Shlomo was going to be Mashiach. His name means peace. He's going to make world peace with God. He's going to bring the world back into peace with God. And he was using the demonic realm to build that temple. So you see, again, just as Adam could have used the snake for his amazing purposes, King Shlomo was using the demons, the idea of the snake, the negativity, to build, constructively build the temple. So this again foreshadows to us this understanding of if you know your, your evil inclination, if you know this, these demonic realms that we have to contend with, these demonic realms of potential failures <clears throat> that scare us, that we know in ourselves like, wow, I've messed up big time and I know I could again, God forbid. And, and why is that? It's because of our possible future errors that we can make. This is what's described in my 
in my deep feeling based on everything I've seen from these different sources as the demonic realm, as the, as the world of the Olamato, as this chaotic whirlwind, um, you know, Ruach Sa'ara, the storm wind that's described, Mefarik Harim, Mashabir Slaim, that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like a, it's like a realm. If, if we picture, what, what are we afraid of, right? We're afraid of death and we're afraid before we die, we're afraid of the mistakes that we could make, that the screw-ups that we could do to, to, to take what we've been given and destroy it with our own hands. That's what we're afraid of, I think. At least I'm speaking for myself. And so where does that exist in possibility in the future? We intuit that it exists out there. And that's what I'm talking about. These are these future possibilities existing in ethereal, as of yet unmanifested scenarios that we haven't dealt with yet. Our future mistakes that we could make, and we know we could make them, that's why we're afraid of them. They exist out there in this demonic realm. <laughs> they exist in this realm of, of Toe, of, uh, of the ether, where our future scenarios, we're going to have to encounter them. And as they exist out there, they're like in this howling wind. They're, yeah, it, we'll see. We'll, we'll explore it. Um, so anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But I'm just saying that the reason I like to talk about these things is, is not just to, just to feel like I know, but it's to know my enemy so that I can understand negativity. And when I understand it, according to the teachings of the Torah, that, that way I'm not afraid of it. When I'm not afraid of it, then I can not only not fall into its trap, but actually just the opposite, use it to service me. So anyway, a little bit more in this Gemara. And Rava said, even though there's this big excuse to the Torah that, you know, they can say we have this big excuse that we didn't really fully take it on because as we've just been exploring, we had such tremendous clarity and we didn't have to work it out for ourselves by dealing with future challenges coming from this Olamato, coming from this these future scenarios of, of evil and, and chaos that we would have to work out and rebuild out and clarify for ourselves. They, they went back and they re-accepted the Torah in the times of Ahasuerus during the Purim story when the Jews were facing, God forbid, Lo'aleinu, near annihilation that Haman, the wicked Haman, was going to kill them. And so when they were able to take on the Torah, even then, then they fully received it because, again, there they had to clarify the truth and they had to pull the darkness out of light. I'm sorry, they had to pull the light out of darkness, sorry. They had to pull the light out of darkness and that way they really earned it, they really integrated it and it was really more powerfully accepted than... On the other hand, when at the foot of Mount Sinai, it was more given to them as a gift. So basically, I won't go through everything now because this is getting long, but why does it say Yom HaShishi? In all the other, um, all the other days of creation, it says the first day. Well, it says, for, it says a second day, a third day, a fourth day. Why does it say the sixth day by the sixth day of creation? Like, what's so special about this the sixth day? So the Gemara basically, excuse me, basically says it's it's a hint to another special sixth day of create, uh, which would be the sixth day of Sivan, the day the the Jews took on the Torah, and basically it quotes a verse that the universe was shaking, it was scared, it was shaking, it was unstable, right? It was collapsing, it was worried. Uh, and then God said, look, I'll make a condition with you. You will stand, you will, you will be, you won't fall apart if 
by another sixth day, and he was saying this to the to the creation on the sixth day. If on another special sixth day of creation the, there will be an Israel uh, Israeli nation that takes on the Torah, then you then you will stand. But if not, I'm going to turn you back to chaos and void. Right. So here you have this this literal connection now to chaos and void. Um, and so basically, the whole, it, the, what it sounds like from this Gemara is that until the Jews finally took the Torah, the whole world was like worried. It was hanging in the balance. Um, when the Jews took the Torah, like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll stand. We'll be able to not slip back into pre-manifestation of the world of Toho. So let's look at that in, in a second. This is very beautiful. Like, why should it be? That the Jews taking the Torah, receiving the Torah, that's going to make sure the universe survives and eventually comes to its intended fruition. So let's look a little bit more. Okay, so it says when the Jewish people decided to take on the Torah and they said, we will do and we will hear, 600,000 ministering angels came and tied two crowns to their heads, one corresponding to we will do and one corresponding to we will hear. And when they sinned in the golden calf, so 1,200,000, so double the amount of 600,000, so 1,200,000 destroying angels came and took their crowns away. And then the Gemara makes a big deal of saying that they put on and took off the crowns. They received the crowns and then they lost the crowns at Har Chorev. So this is just interesting. So first of all, it's called Mount Sinai, but also it's sometimes called Har Chorev, the Mount of Chorev. Chorev means destruction. So I think the reason why the name of the mountain being referred to here as Chorev, which comes from the etymology of destruction, means that it's from this place where the Torah was brought into the world. It can either be the destruction of evil through spiritual pos positivity, or it, in the very same token, it can be where destruction can come back into the world if the, the Israeli nation is not hanging on to the Torah like they should. Okay. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. Now this is fascinating now. Rabbi Yochanan says, But the crowns didn't just disappear. Moses took all the ten, all the crowns. The Jews lost all their crowns when they did the golden calf, but Moshe took them all. Why do we know this? I love this Gemara because you must have Rashi in it. And the Rashi suddenly opens up a whole new dimension to this Gemara. What's the proof that Moses took all the crowns? Is that it then says that Moses took the tent. He took the tent outside the camp. That's what it says in the simple reading of the verse. That when the Jews did the golden calves and Moses was upset. And he's like, the, the tent of meeting between me and the divine presence can't be among these Jews. They're impure from the golden calf, from the idolatry. So I have to take the tent outside the camp. Okay, what in the world does that have to do with that he took all their crowns? So look at Rashi. Rashi says, Umosha Yikach, the Rashi says, Oto Ede, Loshan Acher et Ha'ohel, Lashan Behilo Nero Ali Roshi. That Ohel, tent, is the same etymology as halo. From the verse in Job chapter 29, when his candle or his halo was shining over my head. Now this is amazing. You know why? Because this same verse, that his candle was shining over my head, is in another Gemara in Nida, which is my other like favorite Gemara, where it's the famous one where it, it tells you that a child before it's born, Hashem is shining a light on its head, and with, from this light, he can see from one end of the world to the other. And so he's seeing all the Torah. And right before he's born, an angel taps him on the mouth, and he forgets everything, although he retains a memory of everything he learned in the womb. And the whole purpose of his life is to relearn all that Torah he was learning 
from this experience of seeing the light, of seeing the, the universal logic that pierces and penetrates through all of time and space from one end of the universe to the other, from one boundary of time and space to the other boundary of time and space, like the truth, the real light, the real logic that's going to govern his life and that governs all life from start to finish. So that is being hinted to in the verse, Behilo Nero Aliroshi, when his light was shining over my head, but Behilo, that the candle was like a halo, Rashi says, sounds like OL, sounds like tent. So that, that tells you something fantastic about these crowns, that these crowns that the Jews got for saying we will do and we will hear was this idea of these halos. They got their crowns back means that they got that, that light that was shining over their head before they were manifested into the world of darkness, that clarity of seeing from one end of, with a light from one end of the world to the other, that's what they got back when they got those crowns. And this is really amazing because we also know that it says by Adam in the garden that he was seeing with the light of creation, that light of the first day, he or let there be light, that Adam had that light, he had access to that light, and he also was seeing reality. He was seeing truth. He was able to see from one end of the world, end of the earth to the other. He was able to see the light of where reality was flowing from God's mouth, so to speak, from his holy speech, and how that light was developing and chaining out and ultimately becoming the physical world. And he's, he was able to see how what was manifesting in his world, even in what it wasn't really physicality as we know it, but he was able to see how all the particularities of creation were coming from a straight flow of light from one end of the world to the other, which really is the goal of Torah study, ultimately. It's not, it's not just to be in books. It's to see the Torah as the real light, because the Torah is the matrix. The Torah is the code. The Torah is the divine energy fields, the divine processes the divine speech, which creates realities, and a light, as the Arizal says, that the, the meaning of light, of or, is that it is the definition of light, that extremely important property that governs the universe, the, the definition of it, says the Arizal in time, is that it is that energy coming from God, from God to manifest the world moment by moment, it is that aspect of the energy of manifestation that doesn't change, as even as it pushes out and pushes the chaining out of experiences from world to world, from the highest worlds of the sphere down through seraphim and angels and ultimately through the spheres and the heavens and the seven heavens and all these different processes and spiritual roots ultimately flowing in and out flowing out to create physical realities which are the, just the congealment and the manifestation of all these spiritual signals that are preceding them and pushing them out light is that which never changes through that whole chaining out process it is like the core truth that rests within every manifestation connecting it and linking it as a chain from so to speak the, the essence of God and how that thing that God in his essence is creating and commanding to exist moment by moment, the light is that which is treasured inside of each item, which is that which is true and fully true and totally pure and separate from any of the interference patterns or illusions that have darkness that surround that thing. I just have to say, on this point, the Ben Ishchai I just saw a beautiful point, a beautiful gematria. He says the word for darkness in Judaism in the Torah, which darkness is mentioned before light in the Torah, right? It says, that the darkness was over the face of the depths. And then God said, let there be light. So this is amazing. He says, look at this. So choshech, he says, is the numerical value of if you add the word light, Light is Gematria 207. Or, if you add 207 to the word for, like, demonic illusory forces or other gods, which is called Elilim, like the whole illusory system called Elilim, 
like we say it in the Elenu every day, that we want God to utterly cut off and destroy the Elenu, the false gods, the false forces. So if you if you add and twist together light plus Elenu, light plus these uh, this these other gods, this idea of other gods, if you wrap those two numerical values together, it equals darkness. And so the Ben Chai then quotes a, a Midrash that says that, so you see that God was actually taking the light of creation that let there be light. He was extracting it from the darkness of the world of Tohu. And it quotes a Midrash. He quotes a Midrash that says, Basar Badam, a human being, he can light a candle from lighting from an existing flame. You want a, a person wants to light a candle? Okay, so he has to go to a light source and then light from that light source, light another candle. But Hashem is different. He was able to light He was able to light up the light of the world from darkness itself. Meaning that how did the, how did Hashem create the light? He actually extracted it from the darkness and he pulled the light out of the darkness such that he divided the light from these alien, these these forces of, manif- of negativity and, and illusion that were like leeching and suckling and like leeches, like vampires, hanging onto that light and making it darkness. So when he extract, when Hashem extracted the light from from that scenario, then the alien fell away and only the light remained and was pulled out of the darkness. But obviously, we see that darkness was still left over. Just, it says Hashem saw the light that it was good. And he divided the light from the darkness. He pulled the goodness. He pulled goodness out of the world of Tohu, out of this world of darkness, out of this this place of pre-manifestation, which God willing we're going to explore in the next in the next series of, of uh, lessons and just stuff that I want to share. Um, and he divided the light out of that darkness. So. Anyway, but this light then is thereby through this Rashi, this commentary that when Moses took the Ohel, he took the tent, this really was all the crowns that the Jews lost when they did the sin. Again, what does Rashi say? How do we know that this idea that Moses took the tent means that he got the crowns? Because tent sounds like Behilo Nera. Rashi says, "Who Orpanav?" So that, in other words, what the Jews had as the crowns on their heads was the the the, the candle, the halo of the light that spans from one end of the universe to the other. That clarity, that tremendous knowledge of of true wisdom of Torah, which is just to see the true inner light in everything going on, to have that ability to see it. That was what was represented by the crowns, and that's what Moses took on himself when the, all the Jewish people lost it. He took those crowns, but it's brought in the tradition that Moses gives us gives it back to us every Shabbos. The Baal Shem Tov says, "How do we get this light? How do we reaccess this light which was hidden away after the sin of the tree of knowledge, after the sin of the golden calf? It's in the Torah." that really what he's saying is that through the Torah, a person can access the inner light inside of everything and see the true kernel of truth of how his situation every moment is what's the real intent of it and what's the real truth of his situation as it's flowing straight from the mouth of Hashem. What's that aspect of his situation, the inner core of his situation that is the real reality of it that's inside, yes, a cloud of alien, that's inside a cloud of illusion where he's, where the person in his physical manifestation is stuck in a world of darkness in a dark prison just by being in the physical manifestation. But when he learns Torah and attaches to Torah, he's able to see that light which is buried inside of the alien, inside the darkness, and he's able thereby, by seeing it through the Torah, pull it out, and just as Hashem extracted the light from the darkness in the creation, so too, He's co-creating with Hashem every moment he's attaching to the Torah and extracting the light out of the darkness. Okay. Just a little bit more. Now, I think it's also very, very significant 
also, and Rashi doesn't say this, but I'm saying it now, and I'm sure someone's also said it before, I'm not going to claim that I have a Chiddush, that what I don't necessarily know is a Chiddush. It might be a Chiddush. But Ohel also sounds very much like um, Hiuli, which is the Hebrew term for Hylik, for Hiuli. So for the idea of ethereal tohu, because ethereal tohu, as we said, it's the place of the, of the demonic realm and the realm of our future where we might mess up, but it's also the idea of the pre-manifestation of light. Hylic material, hiuli, is associated with keter, with crown, the level of crown, which is literally what we're talking about. We're talking about the crowns that the Jewish people had over their head. So... Um, There's a verse that says, Zos HaTorah, Adam Kiyamot Ohel. This is the Torah, a man who will die in a tent. And the Gemara says there, what does it mean? It says, a Torah, a person gets Torah if he kills himself over it. <laughs> it also says in this verse that Adam turned to God and said, you know what, God, you, you know, you tricked me. You, you brought a trick on me. You, you wanted to kick me out of the garden. You were just looking for an excuse. See, it says in your Torah that a man's going to die in the tent. So, and God says, you know what, you're right, it says that, but you didn't have to actually eat the tree and die. And I think that's so amazing. You know why I think that that Midrash is really saying to us, both of them, that it says a person gets the Torah if he kills himself over it, and if he, or he dies in a tent, and it says also, Adam brings the verse. So what, is, what does this mean? When what, why is Adam, Adam's looking for an excuse, right? Just like the Jewish people were looking for an excuse after the golden calf. But Adam's looking for an excuse. He says, you know what, God, you wanted me to die. You wanted me to, to fall and fall into death. And what's the source that he brings for that? He says, a person's going to die in the tent. He's going to die in the Ohel. He's going to die because of what's out there in the Hylic Hiuli, in the Hylic possibility fields of his failure. Well, why is that the verse he's using? He could have used a million other verses where it talks about people that died. He could have used the verse, and Abraham died, or, or and Isaac died, you know, or, or, the, or, the, or the spies, or, or the Jewish people worshipped the golden calf, and, and God killed some of them because of that sin. Why did he pick this verse to make his point that a man's going to die in the tent? Because tent is heuli, ohel, is the Hebrew etymology of Hiuli, talking about possibility fields. Adam was saying, my, my failure in the tree of knowledge is out there in the tent. When we think of a tent, we think of a, a, just a space. We think of a space inside of a structure. What he's talking about, and that what that Midrash is talking about, this speaks deeply to me, is we're talking about the tent of, of realities, the tent of possibilities, that space of possibilities Adam was saying to Hashem, you wrote me into that space of possibilities, that ethereal space of possibility fields, of the different scenarios of my life. You wrote me and all my future generations as us dying in there. This had to happen. I had to eat from the tree. This was fate. That had to come out into manifestation. And God says, no. You didn't have to die. You didn't have to follow that trail. You didn't have to make that manifestation come out in that way. Because the other Midrash says, this is the Torah. The whole essence of the Torah is Adam Kiyamut Ba'ohel. A person who dies in a tent means that a person who kills himself over the Torah means that you can, a person can destroy his ego possibility. He can destroy that future possibility of himself doing a sin. In Adam's case, it was his future possibility of sinning with the tree and bringing death to the world. He could have killed that and, and not ever come out. When it says that a, pers a person only gets the Torah when he kills himself over it, Chas V'Sham was talking about suicide. It's talking about that as a lesson brings in Jerusha'i Olam it's really only called Torah, it's really only called a mitzvah when it has some some aspect of 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 a person who conquers his evil inclination, literally goes out and does battle and destroys that possible aspect of himself coming out of the Hiuli, coming out of the of his future manifestations. It's only called a mitzvah when a person is vanquishing his evil inclination. That's what it's telling us. And that was Hashem's response back to Adam, basically. And I want to say 
that Hashem's back, response back to Adam on that verse, a man who will die in the tent, which means to me, a man who could possibly fall and experience at least a miniature death through a possible sin in the future. God is saying back to him, no, you're going to get the Torah when you go out and, and vanquish those future evil expressions of your evil inclination. But the point is that it's, they're talking about the Ohel, which really here I think means the idea of the Hylic ethereal possibility fields. So that's the idea of Ohel in a negative sense, a man who dies in the, in the Ohel, who is dying because of his future sins coming from Hylic possibilities. But in the positive sense, the Ohel, the tent, is also being referred to as all that Moses got all the crowns of the Jewish people that they lost when they did the golden calf. There, Ohel, which is like halo or hylic, is also referring to something very positive, which is the source of light, which is in the upper ethereal realms of blessing. See, because what you have is you have two ethereal realms interacting with each other. Here's the point I'm trying to say. You have a whole ethereal realm. You have a whole possibility field of blessings that can come into this world. Interacting with its negative counterpart, that God has made one thing opposite the other. <coughs> that there's a there's a source of blessings called Ohel, or Hilo Nero, or, or Halo, or Hylic space of blessing of light. <coughs> that is constant. That's called heavens, Shamayim. That's called peace. That is constantly interacting with its counterpart, ethereal zone, its counterpart, hylic zone, of the positive, neg- negative, the possible negative manifestations. So it at once represents all the crowns of light and joy and Torah and clarity that Moses took when he got all the crowns of the Jewish people. <clears throat> but it also represents the tent in which a person could die in which Adam says, see, I was going to die in that tent, in that hyalic zone, in that ethereal zone of possibility. That's the possibility fields of our negative experience. And when we perform the Torah, we can we can be kovish at Yitzro, we can conquer the evil inclination, we can quote-unquote kill ourselves over Torah, which means we, we can vanquish and conquer all the possible missteps and stumblings that we could make in our future manifestations. But by attaching the Torah, we can conquer those missteps through the positive aspect of Ohel, of Hylic possibility. Okay, just to finally wrap this up. That it says in the future we're going to get those crowns back, and it basically quotes a verse that the crowns are called the eternal joy on our heads, this is brought by Rabbi Nachman and many other tzaddikim, uh, that these crowns is associated with keser, with the idea of crown, which is joy. And what's the joy? Why, 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 do we, why did we get these crowns of joy, of eternal joy, by saying we will do and we will hear? Because when a person says, I'm going to do this no matter what, I don't understand it yet, I don't, see, I don't really foresee, right? This is, this, is a lot, this is so important right now. We're talking about the realm of Kesser, right? That they got these crowns. So there's ten spherot, and the top one is called crown, which is associated with will or ratzon, which also is associated with sinor, the pipe. It's above chachma. Chachma, it's above chachma and bina. The point is like this. The Jews are basically saying, we see this as good. We don't fully understand it. We don't really have the vessels yet to understand what the Torah is, but we're going to do it because we love it, because we want it. And then we'll understand. This is such a basically such a fundamental point in life that what ultimately has to lead a person, his wisdom or his desire? And the answer is his desire because simply it's a higher energy. When a person knows what's good and he's simple, like Yaakov Avinu, who is Tom, right? And Yaakov was Yoshev O'alim, by the way. Jacob was the one sitting in the tents. So again, we're talking about tents. And the Ramchal basically says that the tent represents that a person is fully aware of that his blessings are coming from Hashem versus his brother Esau was Isha Sadeh. He was involved in the field, which is also the field where Cain killed his brother Abel. Cain killed Abel in the field. The field represents the darkness, the place of lack of clarity, where the Ramchal states to us that 
It represents where a person feels he needs to be cunning because he doesn't see where his blessings are coming from. They're stuck underground, like under the, the field. But Yaakov sat in the tent. He was the Ishtam. He was the, the simple one. It, what we're saying here about, about um, a person following their will and listening to their desire, their holy desire, and not just making choices based on, does this make sense to me? Is because a person's will, his attraction to the light, his attraction to what is true, has to supersede his logic. It must. It must. Because basically, the, what, what a person, the way he needs to live his life is he has to say, what do I want? What does Hashem want from me? And to really understand what I want and what Hashem wants are really one thing. right? It says in Pirkei Avot, make his will your will so he will dominate and, and, make, and make the will of your enemy subservient to what you want because everything is Hashem's will. But he's going to express his will in our lives and we choose his will and realize that our will and his are one, that they're aligned. And why? Because will, what a person is driving after, that is what shapes his wisdom. Once you know what you want... And once you know what Hashem wants, then the ideas of wisdom and understanding and analysis, they are driven by and dominated by will. It has to be that a person is, is pursuing his holy desire and says, I will do and then I will hear. He has to pursue his holy desire. And once he's just selected what he wants, then he starts thinking thoughts of wisdom of how do I get that? But if he's always saying, well, does this make sense? And then I'll do it then he's always just going to be switching desires because he's always just going to be... If he doesn't rule his wisdom by his... If he doesn't use his uh, desire and his goals to rule over his wisdom, well, then he's just going to constantly be changing his mind because he'll never really know if what he thinks is correct is correct because in the meantime, he'll think something is correct based on logic, but then he'll want something different than that. And so then he'll say, then he'll just throw out what he thought was true in his logic, right? In his logic, he says, I need to be a good person. I need to share as much as I can. Um, but then he'll say, but I don't want to. <laughs> and now he'll, sw he'll switch his logic. And that's the whole hypocrisy of, of the Western world is that they're trying to, the Greek, the Greek mentality is wisdom is king, right? Wisdom and logic and the human mind reign supreme doesn't work. Why? Because you can philosophize about morality all you want. You can have a Kant, a German, who, you know, the altruism principle and, you know, the moral imperative and you have to be moral and, you know, then you have the Nazis. And I'm not saying all Germans are that way, but I'm just saying that wisdom can't be the one to rule. What has to rule is desire. And desire is a holy desire. It's a desire for God. It's a desire for the Creator in our lives. When that rules over our wisdom, then everything is flowing in the right direction. So I'm really going to um, finish this up here. Amar Rabbi Elazar, B'Shashik, Dima Yisrael Nasa Nishma, Yasas Baskol, Ve'amar Allah, Hen Migil, Allah, V'nei Raz, L'Venei Zeh Raz, Shemalach Yashayis, V'shtam Shemim Bo, Dichtiv, Baruch Hashem, Malachav, Gibor HaKalach, Haseh Devar, L'Shma, B'Kol Devarah. Parash HaOseh, V'Hadar, L'Shma. That, Finally, when the Jews got these crowns, a, a heavenly voice went out and said, "Who?" and they got these crowns when they said, we will do and then we will hear, we will act according to our holy desire and then we will understand deeper wisdoms and that we will, we will place the desire above logic before our logic. We will place the idea of beyond logic, preceding our logic. A heavenly voice went out and said, who revealed to my children the secret that the heavenly angels know. Now, the word he uses for secret, raz, is so significant because there's two basic words I'm aware of in Hebrew that means secret. One is sod, which has a numerical value of 70, and raz has a numerical value that's used here. It could have said the word sod, but instead it uses the word raz. And here, raz, Reish Zion, has a numerical value of 207, which is a numerical value of light, of or, aleph of Reish. So clearly, again, we see this tremendous hint, this tremendous hit, uh, uh, remez to, again, that what we're dealing with here, that the, the crown the Jews got 
was that same light that Adam had in the garden, that light of clarity, that light, the clarity that Adam had in the garden that the child has before it's born. And what is the secret? <clears throat> what is the what is the secret of this hidden light that we access when we learn the Torah and we learn it with desire, with heshek, with <clears throat> this idea of of joy, of the joy of just doing it, of just pursuing it because it's right and, and my understandings and my logic and what's going to happen will just flow from there. <clears throat> because it says about the angels that they also proceed doing before hearing. It says they they are Ose Devaro Lishmobikol Devaro. And the Zohar says, and Rabbi Nachman quotes in Lukut chapter 33, I believe, that it means that they they do the word, literally means that they create the word. And then they hear the word. And Rabbi Nachman says, based on the Zohar, that <coughs> he says, when a person conquers his evil inclination, right, he's Kovesh at Yitzro, he conquers his evil inclination. It means that when a person conquers his evil inclination, he takes, literally, and this is basically the same thing Rabbi Nachman is saying in that Torah in chapter 33, he takes those possible manifestations of his self, those negative things he could do, and he rearranges them, and he's Kovish at Yitzro, he conquers his evil inclination, and he builds the word of God through his actions, and then he hears he hears those very words that he rescued, those very shattered possibilities that he rescued and that he conquered and he turned into good possibilities. He then hears them speaking to him and then he can learn Torah through going through challenges. And again, this is a lot like the last point I'm going to make. This ties back beautifully a little bit back into the Gemara where God said to the, to the creation, if the Jews take on the Torah, good. And if not, I'm going to turn you back to chaos and void. I'm going to turn you back into negative hyalic space, into negative preformed space. So this is beautiful because what does that mean? Why should the Torah prevent the world from sliding back into negative preformed space? The reason is, is because that every time a Jew in his individual life is performing Torah, he's, it says in other places, im lo and it says, <laughs> That these Midrashim are saying that when a person is studying and performing Torah, he's building worlds, he's upholding the world. Why? Because he's going into those scenarios, those potential worlds, those potential experiences that are existing as negative. And we're gonna, God willing, explore next time. They're they're built basically in their default state as tovavo, as chaos and void, as darkness, as broken scenarios. But when he goes into the and he marches forward into the future, and he marches into those scenarios, and he does it with the confidence and with the joy of every step step I'm taking, I'm performing Torah, I'm doing Torah. Then he's literally building the world in a positive in a positive direction. And instead of dying in the tent, and instead of falling for those traps laid for him and those hylic ethereal moments coming out to, coming up to him as he's encountering them stepping into the future instead of falling into the chaos and falling into the darkness of a sin he's rather taking those very possibility fields and building them and building them as holy positive worlds by doing the torah and then understanding the torah through passing those tests on main king